Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April the 6th, 2021. This is episode 2850 of the Survival Podcast. Today is Tuesday, April the 6th, 2021. This is episode 2851 of the Survival Podcast. We're going to talk about one of my favorite subjects today. Aquaculture. We're going to do it a little bit differently. Most of the times when I've talked about aquaculture, aquaponics, backyard ponds, backyard fish raising, anything like that, I have come at it from a standpoint of here's exactly how to do it. I'm going to do something a little bit different today since I've done that before. I'm going to talk about it more on a philosophical level and try to get your mind going with should I do this? If so, how should I do this? What can I do with this? And how does this work for me? And also, I want to help you if you're like, you know, maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe it's not the right time or place for me to do it. I mean, in a lot of ways, if you plan on moving in the next, like, year, you probably shouldn't be converting a swimming pool into a pond. Because most people don't want that. Now, some people do. But when you're getting ready to sell a property, you should always be thinking ahead to your exit strategy. And most people do not, right? So that's just how we need to start thinking. And I want to get you really thinking about this concept and whether you do it or not, how it can actually benefit our country and our people, especially in a world where we're headed toward a place where there is a desire to change the dietary habits of people in the first world, to push us more onto a soy-based, vegetable-based diet, which I don't think is good for human beings. I just don't. I don't have a problem with people eating vegetables. In fact, I do an awful lot of work on teaching people how to grow vegetables. But I think getting the majority of your carbohydrate or your majority of your calories from plant-based carbohydrates is a bad idea. And I think in general, concentrated plant fats from the majority of sources we get them from, there are some exceptions, but the majority, like soy and corn, right, is bad for the human body. It just is. And so I think being able to raise our own protein uh, to at least some degree having some level of uh, raising our own fats, because especially certain fish like catfish actually have quite a bit of fat in them, uh, very high-quality fat if we feed them well, etc. Um, I think it has a lot of advantages. And I think that, well, we'll just save it. We'll, we're going to get into this subject pretty deep today, uh, a little bit more of like a, a thinking version, some ideas, some concepts, some things you can do, some advice. You know, I've been doing this now one way or another for eight years. And I've been doing true aquaculture on this property right here. I put my first aquatic system in only a couple months after we moved in. That was eight years ago. And I've done a ton of different things at this point, And I've made a lot of mistakes. And that's led me to a point now where I think I can give better advice than I ever have on how to think about this thing. So we'll jump on that in just a minute. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one, is John Pugliano's Wealth Steading Podcast. John is a longtime community member. I first met him, and met him in Salt Lake City over a decade ago. He's been one way or another part of this community since then. Uh, he's a member of the Expert Council. He's been on for numerous interviews. He's an author. Uh, and a great podcaster, and a great financial advisor. And you can learn more about him and his work at the Wealthsteading Podcast, which you can find at, you guessed it, wealthsteading.com. And uh, I really cannot recommend highly enough that you check out John, his work, his podcast, 
and everything else. Remember, if you have questions for John, you can get them into us for the Expert Council shows every Friday. Next up today, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. Uh, we're talking about water today, and water, my friends, is life. It really is. And, you know, there's a lot you can do with local water sources if you have a way to purify and filter it. And we should be filtering our water on an ongoing daily basis anyway. When you get a boil water advisory from your city or county or whatever, do you know what that means? There was already a problem with the water, and they just figured it out, and you've been drinking it. Uh, Berkey, it, to me, is the go-to solution. It's the one you can rely on for your water treatment needs. It has no moving parts. There's really nothing to break. It always works. It looks great, and it's incredibly cost-effective. But why the Berkey guy? Because he's the Berkey guy. What are you going to do, get it from the non-Berkey guy? I mean, seriously, Jeff's been a great sponsor of this show uh, since 2010, I believe. It's remember, 2009, actually, is when Jeff came on board as a sponsor. And uh, he continues to support the show and the work that we do, and he will take care of your needs. Check out his website at directive21.com. So let's jump out of the gate here with a quote of the day that will fit this episode perfectly because, well, I picked it out for that very reason. This is by Lauren Isley, who is a uh, long-since-deceased, I guess about 25, 30 years ago, uh, scientist from, from America. And he one time said, if there is magic on this planet, it's contained in water. And that's because Isley understood that We owe everything that we have on this planet that's alive, supports life, that grows, reproduces. We owe it all to water. There's a famous quote, I don't remember who said it, but it's something like, we owe all life on Earth to the fact that there's four inches of topsoil or a foot of topsoil or whatever, and it rains. But here's the thing. When life emerged on this planet, there was no topsoil. Water and its interactions with everything built everything. The planet at one time was rock and water. And water is the genesis of all life, as we understand it. And I don't want to get on anybody's religious sensibilities or anything here. God does however God does whatever God does in God's way. But in our fundamental understanding, water is life. Keep that in mind as we go today through today's show. So just real quick before we jump into the subject, I want to remind you of the uh, Member Support Brigade is on sale for $35 a year. The discount code is I want 35 when you sign up. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on uh, on uh, on members to uh, learn how to sign up there and just use discount code again. I want 35 I W A N T 35 when you sign up to get the discount. And if you have any problems with that or anything, reach out to me by email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. As always, put TSPC in the subject line to make sure that I find it if it goes into the dreaded spam box folder. All right, so let's start talking about this whole concept of aquaculture. And I want to start out with what I mean when I say aquaculture today. In general, we separate aquaculture from aquaponics. And what we mean by that is aquaculture is basically the culture of fish and aquatic life and all things and what have you, where aquaponics is where we're growing vegetables and we use an aquatic life form like fish. For today, you can put it together. I don't care. I'm not worried about it. When I say aquaculture today, I mean that you are in some way growing fish or other aquatic species in your backyard. It's all that I mean. I don't care how you do it. 
Uh, I don't even care why you do it. I just care that that's what you're doing, that's what we're talking about. But in general, we're at least trying to do this in some sort of natural format. So I would say like the exception to that is if somebody's just running a mechanical filter and two IBCs in a garage, not really what I'm talking about today. That's really fish farming. right? It's a straight-up fish farming. You're not doing anything to create any kind of natural environment. It's not adding to the ecosystem in your backyard. It's not feeding birds and bees. It's not bringing in other diversity. It's not doing any of that stuff. But as long as we're doing that, kind of fits the definition that I'm, I'm spitballing for you today. Um, now, the reason that I think we should consider this is, number one, I try to bring you things that most people can do. Okay, You, you won't hear me talk a lot about banana circles and citrus farming. Very little. And the reason is that there is a very tiny area in the United States, without taking heroic action, where you can grow citrus and you know bananas, etc., reliably in the United States. So it doesn't apply to most people. And I think it makes a lot of sense that I don't spend a lot of time talking about things that only 1% of the people in the country can do, or 5%, or even 10%. That when I talk about something, I want something that, like, the vast majority can do it. And I believe with adjustments, almost, okay, because some of you live in like zone two in the Arctic Circle, okay, um, but almost everybody in the United States can do aquaculture on some level, on, some, on even very small properties. That even a lot of people that are in suburbs, etc., can do some form of aquaculture. Now, I'm sure some of you live in the blue hair, Karen-dominated uh, HOAs, and I'm just going to say straight up that other than to mock them and to tell you to get out of them and tell you to avoid them, I do not factor that into my determination of what I talk, to, talk about at all. Uh, I am not about to exclude a subject you know, because the, the Karens and the blue hair say you can't do it. So if that's why you can't do it, design around it or get out of it. <laughs> But I think most people can. I think even a lot of people say, well, I live up north and it'll freeze. See, my way of looking at this is... Do you live in a place where fish live in the wild? And if the answer to that question is yes, then you live in a place where you can do aquaculture. You might have to go deep. You might have to provide some supplemental heat if you're really in you know, kind of an edgy, dicey, can you pull this off type of, of situation. Um, but, you know, we got down to two below zero this year. And even with my ponds barely being below grade, um, being on average about three foot to three and a half foot deep, uh, everything lived. I had no losses during during that. And that's with pumps going out and, and everything else. So there's, there's ways to do this, and we'll talk a little bit about some of those today. Um, another reason I think this makes a lot of sense for us is a lot of your feed requirements in time, as you develop your skill set and figure out what works for you, can be self-provided. So, You know, one of the negatives about keeping something like quail, which are just one of the best animals for small-scale producers to be able to produce meat and eggs and be largely self-sufficient in that you can have roos and hens and have babies and brood your own babies. And, you know, if you want to expand your genetics, you can just trade with other people that have different lines and you can always keep going back to producing your own birds, is you're going to have to buy feed. I, I'm not saying it can't be done, but I don't know of anybody right now who's successfully raising Japanese court next quail who's self-sufficient on feed. 
even 50% self-sufficient. Like, you have to go to feed. We get into, like, rabbits and things. It gets a little bit easier to produce some or even maybe all of your own food. But when it comes to fish, we're going to, in general, there are ways to do still ponds. I'm not going to get into that today. But in general, we're going to move water. If we're going to move water, we're going to use a pump. If we're going to use a pump, we can move water from one body of water to another body of water and overflow back into the first body of water. Or we could submerge a protective tank so we have water flow in between, but big fish can't get in. There's all kinds of ways that we can grow minnows. And if we can grow minnows, we can feed predator fish. Minnows generally eat algae, phytoplankton, zooplankton. We can, we can develop systems that provide all of that. We can grow fish like goldfish that are extremely cheap and very robust and very hardy and handle extreme cold very, very well. They're, they reproduce very reliably. And their babies make great feed for predator fish as well. And they can live almost 100% on algae. I have goldfish that I barely feed in one system. And every time I walk out to look at them, I have some tiles that I grow plants on and where they're exposed and the algae's on them. They're all like, you know, tail up, head down. And they're grazing on that algae like little cows on, on, a, on a field or something. So there's all types of ways that we can produce food for our fish within the systems. Now... I'm going to say something obvious, but I, 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 because I'm talking about kind of fitting this into smaller scale areas or areas where you can't just, you know, rent an excavator or a bulldozer or hire a company and put in, you know, a half acre, quarter acre pond or something like that. If you can do that, that's what you should do. All the systems you see in my backyard, if my backyard was deep clay, there probably wouldn't be any of them. There'd probably be three or four small ponds on my property, 100% in ground. So if you have that type of a pond, even a small, like a 10th acre pond, that, that can be almost 100%, like you don't have to do any feeding at all. And you can have a really good, you know, reliable harvest over time, as long as you don't overfish your own pond from it. When it comes to the type of stuff we're talking about today, you're going to have to make some adjustments and some conscious effort to pull this off. But a lot of it in time will happen on its own. When I set up a new pond, you know, in my ponds, you're talking anywhere between like 1,100 to 5,000 gallons. And when I set one up in the first year, it takes a while to really develop. In the second year, inevitably ends up with green water, and I use uh, barley straw bales to help clear that. Uh, that's like a suspended algae. And by year three or four, we end up with crystal clear water, very healthy system, and tons of zooplankton in them. Little Daphnia and all, just tons. And most of it is not stuff that's even intentionally introduced. It, it's one of these things that just sort of happens. Now, things like bring a few buckets of water in from a healthy aquatic wild system, that's going to do tons to bring the floor up and all. Um, but as that happens, the base of the food web is established. And so... Then we can have a tank maybe that we're running water through as part of a filtration system that's full of minnows. And while you can feed them, and while that does help lead to population explosions, you don't really have to. And that's something I find to be pretty unique when it comes to producing a protein, a real protein, one with a face in a backyard. Um, the other thing with it, you know, it is a protein, and it's a high-quality protein that can be harvested as needed. Today... 
I went out to my pond and I noticed a small sunfish was dead in the nursery tank. I don't know what happened to him. Maybe a other fish got him, but he got in there to hide, or you know, maybe it was just his time. I don't know, but he was dead. And so I reached in and pulled him out. He was a little mushy, but he was still holding together. So I threw him on a hook, tossed him in, and a few seconds later, I pulled out about an 18-inch catfish, which I then promptly released back into the pond. However, if I wanted to eat catfish tonight, I could have bonked him on the head and cooked him. And if I want another one tomorrow, I could go do the same thing. And if I don't want another one for the next three weeks, four weeks, the pump that's keeping that pond healthy is going to run anyway. The water that's in there is going to be in there anyway. And the other fish that I'm not going to eat are continuing to grow. And I only take what I need as I need it. And unlike almost every other meat source that we can grow in our backyard, I actually end up, to my advantage, the longer I wait to harvest an animal. So let's look at some things we can do this with to a degree, like rabbits. You can have your buck in your does, breed them, start growing out your bunnies, and once your bunnies are big enough to harvest, only harvest what you need when you need it. Instead of harvesting, like let's say you have eight bunnies, instead of slaughtering them all and processing them all in one day and putting them all in the freezer, you harvest one a day, one two weeks from now, one three weeks from now, one five month, five weeks from now, right? And you keep doing that until they're all gone. Well, you do have to kind of think about co-housing once you get to a certain age, but let's say we can solve that. But you have to do more work. You're not going to keep them with your breeding stock at that point. So now you're, you're continuously having to take care of them. If you're down to one, you still have to take care of that one. And the older it gets, the tougher it gets. And if you look at almost everything we raise for meat in a backyard, it has an optimum harvest window. And as you go past that, you get into where the animal might get larger, but you don't get much gain for the food input, and the quality from a consumption standpoint tends to decline. So if you think of like old chickens that we call, what do we do with them? We stew them, we make soup, whatever. We don't, we don't take an old chicken that's been around for like three seasons and dice it up and, and saute it because it's going to be tough. right? So we have to do a slow cook. So we know that the chicken is going to do well somewhere between eight to 12 weeks, you know, in grow out, and then at that point it's going to get larger and tougher, etc. Geese peak at 11 weeks. So if you take a gosling from the day it comes out of the egg, 11 weeks is the optimum for quality and for size ratio compared to input on feed. By the way, geese you can do 100% on grass. And I should acknowledge that since I started out with how you can provide your own feed for fish. If you have good grass, you can do geese 100% on grass. But at, you know, 16 weeks, that bird's starting to get tough. If I have a catfish, like the one I caught this morning is 18 inches, if if I catch that same fish about September, it's going to be about 24 to 25 inches, and it's going to go from just under 2 pounds to around 4.5 pounds this summer. I just have more fish. The quality of that fish does not go down. I've heard people say, you know, like, when catfish get really big, man, they're just not as good eating. I don't know, maybe if you're talking like 40-pound fish, but the kind you're going to raise in a backyard. I, I've, I've caught channel catfish you know, north of 12, 14 pounds. They taste the same as smaller ones. So we can let that biomass accumulate, not put any storage energy into it, and all we end up with is more and equal quality over time. That's something I don't really know that you get from any other livestock uh, other than aquatic livestock. 
And that's part for the same reason that growth rates are high due to high efficiency in aquatic environments. So a fish will put on more biomass with a pound of feed than a cow or a chicken or anything else in the same stage of life will. Because a fish doesn't have to hold itself up. Right? It floats or it sinks, depending on what kind of what it wants to do. But it, it is in a, a largely weightless environment. Just think about when you're in water, how easy it is to move around, if you know how to swim anyway, right? Versus you have to hold your body up. And there's a certain amount of energy that goes into a chicken just standing up. Just standing there requires a certain amount of caloric burn. You have what's called a, a, a BMR, a basal, a, basal, a basal metabolic rate. Like if you lay out flat on the ground and do nothing, there's still a certain amount of calories that you need to burn every day to run your bodily functions. And when you get up and walk around, the amount that you need to do that goes up. If you were weightless, the number would go down. And so we have these high growth rates due to the efficiency of the market uh, or of the environment. So that's a huge advantage, and that applies to a lot of aquatic uh, vegetation we can grow as well. The next thing is we can grow feedstock for our other animals as an output from aquatic systems. I'm, I'm building the system to do right, developing the system right now. It's already built to do it for my ducks uh, using water hyacinth as feedstock. Um, duckweed is a good feedstock. Azola is a good feedstock. So these are byproducts. Uh, a, an aquatic system with a properly managed vegetative component to it, is healthier than without it. If we, the one thing we have to do is we have to keep an eye on these, these, this vegetation. And we do have to remove some of it so that it doesn't actually become a negative. People think, well, there's plants produce oxygen. But most of the plants we're talking about for this purpose are plants that float. So the green part of the plant is above the water line, the roots are below. So yes, that plant produces oxygen. No, it does not add oxygen to the water in any significant amount. Why? Because it's transpiring above the water. It's putting off oxygen above the water. So it's going to the atmosphere. But it doesn't mean that the plant doesn't make the system healthier by taking nutrient out of it. And then we can recycle that nutrient in the form of calories and protein, right, to our livestock which we can then consume or eat the byproduct of, like an egg from, from poultry. And it's one of these systems that it really does this kind of, once you set it up, it kind of just does this. Like all you have to do is remove some of it and put it in the right place, and everything kind of takes care of itself from there. There's a lot of other things we can do with what we think of as feedstock. I've been talking about this to people kind of individually lately that have been asking about it, but when you look at water hyacinth, not only can you feed it to livestock, but you can make ethanol out of it. I'll see if I can find the video today and add it to the show notes. But I found a video of a gentleman somewhere in uh, Africa where they cook primarily indoors, but they have no electricity, right? So they use wood and charcoal, which is bad indoors because they don't have proper fireplaces. Like, they're like open kitchen fires with like an open vent above it. And so you're getting smoke and carcinogens and everything in the house. The better way to cook in that environment is to use kerosene, um, which they use extensively. They call it paraffin there. Um, but it's extremely expensive. 
gas and kerosene, all of it is very, very expensive uh, for any use in that area of the world. And generally so is ethanol. But they have an abundance of water hyacinth, and this guy's making water hyacinth into ethanol and selling it. Like he's putting a little like water, like used water bottles, and and people are using it with their cook stoves to cook indoors. A lot healthier. So that's just another example of like the byproduct approach to using this stuff. Of course, it also can be used to create fertility. So my system is going to feed water hyacinth to ducks and and the few chickens we have, and whatever they don't eat becomes compost, and that compost is extremely fertile compost. Marine systems are extremely fertile. And when we take an aquatic system with a lot of fertility in it, because we're introducing fertility in it, and then we're growing plants, those plants are taking that fertility up. It's incredibly bioavailable. And that means when it breaks down into its own form of compost, it is then highly bioavailable to terrestrial plants as well. Next, Aquaculture has a track record of feeding humans for thousands of years. We see this mostly in Asia. I remember Bill Mollison said one time, he said, if you give a a Chinaman as much as a teacup of water held in the land, he'll put a fish in it. And it's true to a degree. And throughout Asia, we have a tremendous um, history of aquaculture in all human settlement. And what's important about that is generally when we think of Asia, especially when we think of like wetland cultivation, aquaculture, etc., we think of the tropics and the subtropics. But there's a tremendous climate range there. You know, there's places in Japan where people save up half their lives so they can afford to go skiing there. And in those climates, we have that history of aquaculture. It's done in all types of climates. There's a tremendous... Um, history of aquaculture. It's just not done as much anymore in places like Croatia, Eastern Europe, etc. There's systems that they found like the remnants of and they kind of had to put it back together as to what was going on back there where they were like three pond systems. And the ponds were literally drained and grown as pasture one season um, and then they were grazed off and refilled and seeded with young fish the second season grown out in the third and harvested at the end of the third, and those three ponds kept rotating through. Uh, that was very popular in kind of the Balkan areas and things like that. So we have this massive history, and I think one of the ways to solve the problems of the present and the future are to look to the solutions of the past. What did people do when we couldn't rely on the incredibly cheap and abundant uh, energy that we have available today? Because as we've seen, sometimes that energy can Uh, dependency can fail us. And I don't think that's going to get any better going forward, at least not in the short term. Next, there are tons of aquatic and semi-aquatic vegetables that we can grow along with fish. And a lot of them, like, they're not even things that we've altered. They're still in their natural state. Duck potato is a perfect example of that. It was an incredibly important food source for Native Americans and early settlers here. It's still widely available and easy to grow. I'm not big on carbohydrates, so I don't grow it myself, but if you are, then there's no reason you couldn't use it. That can also be used to feed livestock, and it can be used to create other products. And that's just one example. The most productive plant per square foot in the world for caloric output is the water chestnut. I have taken, you know, 
a 10-gallon um, flower pot, basically. I'm not really sure you'd call it the rectangular, but they hold about 10 gallons. I have filled it with, with you know, maybe a couple inches of gravel to weigh it down, drilled some holes in it, and set it in one of my ponds full to the top with a good topsoil. That's it. So it's got some water exchange in it, and it's only maybe sitting a couple inches in the water, but it stays super saturated. I have taken in a single water chestnut and pushed it in the center just below the surface, walked away, and never looked at it again until the end of the season. You pull that pot out really heavy, so go easy on your back, let it dry out for a couple days, turn it upside down, and it seems like the whole damn thing is full of water chestnuts. That's just another example. Taro, of course, being another plant. But there's a lot of things that we can grow that we don't think of as aquatic vegetation that can be put into wicking beds, marshlands, things like that, that grow extremely well. The most productive system probably ever devised by humans was the Chinampa-based systems of, of Central and South America of the past. They're also like, people really kind of, I don't know, romanticize the Chinampa systems. They were really, if done on any scale, systems that required like an entire village to manage and run. They were incredibly labor-intensive systems. But it doesn't mean we can't bring elements of them into our backyard. And then I'm going to end this segment of the show with what I started out with today, water's life. I don't see a world in which if you end up on hard times, you're like, Geo, unless it's a flood, okay? So if anyone wants to take the extreme view, but unless it's a flood, I don't think anybody ever ends up with like, Geo, I wish I had less water storage going on here. I, I really think that the, the fact that, you know, I have thousands of gallons of extra water out there, that no, I'm not going to go just dip a, 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 a cup in and start drinking. What it's there is incredibly valuable. Because remember, when it comes to... If we're doing without water from our conventional sources, it's not just drinking water. It's drinking water. It's cooking water. It's bathing water. And for those of us that are homesteaders, critically, it's water for our livestock. So I think there's an incredible value just in having a water on your property from that standpoint. But when I say water is life, and when I, when I go back to our quote of the day with, if there is magic on the planet, it's contained in water. I'm thinking about what I've seen happen here since I put these aquatic systems in. I, I know that all of the plants and everything like that have brought in a lot of the bees and the wasps, but so is the water. Because I do hit periods in the year where I don't have a lot of bloom on the property. I don't have a lot of pollen or, ne you know, pollen or nectar flow or what have you, and I still have bees and wasps everywhere because water is life and they need it. Some of the dragonflies that I have seen around my systems, I'm like, I, I, there's one that's kind of like a fuchsia, mauve, pink, purple blend. And, and, and honestly, I looked at it and kind of went like, I, I, didn't, I didn't even know that that existed. Like, and I don't mean the animal, I mean the color. Just, I really didn't understand that was a color. Um, there's an old thing, I don't know if it still works, but when Siri first came out on iPhone, you could ask Siri what her favorite color was and she was like it's kind of green but with more dimensions or something like that and and i've kind of seen uh dragonflies and other critters that kind of make me feel that way like this is like a new dimension of color uh birds are constantly using our water systems we even built a small miyagi pond which for those that are new to the show a timber frame pond basically built out of four by fours and a pond liner i built a little one for my wife that holds yeah, 150 gallons worth of water 
and we took a stone sink that we got off of, I think, Etsy. Not Etsy. Uh, what's the one? Uh, Wayfair, right? We got it off of Wayfair. And I made like a basin out of it. The pump pumps in through the bottom, overflows the edges for a birdbath. And we did that because she wanted a birdbath. And I'm like, you know, if you put a birdbath out there in the Texas sun, it's going to just be boiling hot by midday every day. It will never be what you want it to be. By moving the water and having some depth and shade, we were able to give the birds water year-round, especially when they need it, which is midsummer and midwinter here. And it's done incredible things for diversity. And it's one thing that you don't feed birds. And if you want to feed birds, let me tell you what you feed them. Black oil sunflower. It will give you the largest diversity of songbirds that you can bring in with seed. But the most valuable birds that we have are primarily insectivores. And there are birds that are very insectivore. There's omnivores as well, but there's some that almost eat no seed, or they're not really attracted by seed, even if they'll eat some. Well, water brings in everything, so water is life. Here's some ideas I have for you today. Like I said, this is not like a nuts and bolts how-to show. You can just you know, put in like backyard fish production in my search box, and you'll find all kinds of stuff on, on the exact how-to. Uh, I'll try to look a few up, put them in the show notes for you as well today. But I just want to give you some ideas and some things to think about because I can't tell you what you should or should not do in your backyard when it comes to this. These are, you know, ponds are serious commitments in my opinion. Like, it's something you've put a lot of money and time and effort into and changing your mind is a little bit complicated. It, it, I do think it makes sense to start out with like some stock tanks that are linked together with a pump or something like that because if you do change your mind, you can always do something with them, Right. You go and you build something like a Miyagi or you, you know, get an excavator out and start digging a, a six-foot-deep hole or something like that, um, you've kind of made a commitment. And it's going to be expensive for it to go away. So do go slow. But on that note, Miyagis, which are the ponds that I build out of 4 by 4s and pond liners, are beautiful. I've learned some things, though. Like, I have some pretty good bulge in my big one. I think it's fine. I really do. But I would have definitely done it differently. I would have definitely put verticals uh, on the outside for secondary supports. If it was possible, which it isn't, I would have gone a couple feet into the ground with those as well. And there's some other things that maybe I would have done differently that I won't dig deeper into today. But they definitely are beautiful. And you could certainly put in one that's a lot lower than mine if you can go in the ground. So, you know, if you have a pond that's six foot deep into the ground and two feet above grade, only two feet of the water pressure is exerted on, on that Miyagi frame. Okay, And the majority of the pressure is going to be in the first three to four foot, all of which is below grade, pushing against Mother Earth. They can push all at once. It ain't going nowhere. right? So they are beautiful, and there are ways that you can maybe do them a little better than I have up till now. But above-ground pools are cheaper and more efficient. Because a Miyagi, or a timber frame pond by its nature, is square, it has a long dimension, or two long dimensions, if it's you know equal width and length, it's really a square. Um, and then your pressure variance is pushed on that center extensively. When we take an above-ground pool, you, if you look at what's being used, you're talking about a very thin steel and they don't really look like they're that sturdy, and in many ways they're not. If you've ever seen anybody make a mistake like in 
hit one with like a lawn tractor, you've seen the disaster that comes next. But in general, they stay for years and years and years and nothing happens because that round pressure exertion uh, is very sturdy. They're designed to do exactly, you know, when you do a Miyagi, you're building something that really I don't think before I did them, anybody did them. I've, I've never seen anything quite like them. I'm not saying I'm the only one that ever did it or my original idea, but it was like I didn't get the idea from anybody else. I was like, I think this will work. Um, when you use an above-ground pool, you're using a thing designed to hold a lot of water to hold a lot of water. We had a 27-foot round above-ground pool at my house in Arlington. I think it hold, held like 26,000 gallons of water, something like that. There are the most common above-ground pools are about 24-foot. They're about four foot deep. They held somewhere around 20,000 gallons of water. That's a lot of water. And if you go on Craigslist, you can often find above-ground pools completely free, if you'll come take them away. And they seem really big, but when you take them apart, they fit in the back of a pickup truck. If you're not comfortable putting one together, you can call up your local above-ground pool store. And when you start talking about installation, they'll say, we don't do that. And you'll say, but do you have someone you recommend? And they'll say, yes, we do. And they'll give you a name or two or three, and you can call that person up. And the general cost to install an above-ground pool is somewhere between $500 and 1000 bucks. A good liner for a pool will be in the neighborhood of a few hundred dollars. So all in, without even doing the work, you can get into a $20,000 pond, with air quotes like Dr. Evil Pond, in your backyard for a couple grand. That's way more efficient um, than a Miyagi. A 12 by 12 Miyagi with liner and all is going to cost you about that and more, and it won't hold anywhere near as much water. You know, you're looking at somewhere around 4,500 gallons versus about 20,000 gallons. So, so five times the water for the same money if you don't do the work yourself and you have to do your, the work yourself with a Miyagi. So a tremendous amount of value. Something else to keep in mind about above-ground pools. You can generally, unless there's some reason you can't, bury an above-ground pool 50% below grade is what they're considered to be safe for. I've done it. It makes it look a lot better. And you can run one as a natural pool that's also a pond, if, if you insist on doing that. Basically, it's a pond that you swim in. So that's just, I mean, really, I think that's something that's underutilized today. And the beauty of this, remember what I said about some people don't want a pond in their backyard? If you have an above-ground pool functioning as a pond, it is, other than figuring out what to do with all the fish or whatever, it's really easy to drain it, clean it, Put it back together as a pool. It's also really easy if the person buying the house just doesn't want a pool to pack it up and have it go away, which happens, and that's why they're available for free on, on Craigslist. So if I wasn't trying to make things pretty, I probably would have already done this by now myself. And if I didn't have a wife who was totally opposed to it, my above-ground pool that I own would probably be a swimming pond rather than an above-ground pool right now. Next, if you can dig a hole, go as, as deep as is practical and safe. I, I think that that's just more water, more stable, especially from a standpoint of the environment in it, the ecosystem you're creating, and temperature. And the deeper, the more stratified layers of temperature you get, I'm not going to get into spring and fall turnover and all of that today. You're not going to probably 
type of pond we're talking about today get deep enough that you're ever going to have a thermocline or anything like that. Uh, in you know one acre ponds, you, you can have a thermocline. Um, the type of ponds we're talking about, no, but you still get stratified layers of temperature. I, I think every kid that's ever been to a big swimming pool has found it interesting, you know, when you dive in the big deep end where it's 12 feet deep as you go down, not only you feel the pressure on yours, you feel the temperature in the water change. And that's a pool that people are in all the time, creating a lot of mix of, of the of the layers. Definitely when you go into a, a pond or a lake like that, you, you feel that water temperature decline as you go deep, deeper. So deep is good for that. Deep is good for protecting from freezing and frost. And in general, if you are below your frost line, your pond's not going to freeze to the bottom. It isn't because you're gaining some thermal gain from the earth at the depth of the bottom of the pond. And it's a, there's a point where that thermal gain hits the ice cap and it kind of stops things. And remember, we say we owe all life on earth to water. We also owe it to the fact that water breaks the laws of science in a way. Water is the only substance we know of. That as it gets denser as it cools, right into the point where it changes from a liquid to a solid state. And just before that happens, it becomes less dense. If you take two substances and one barely, and, and it, the, you take a substance that barely floats, and you cool it enough, it'll sink because it becomes more dense. It's a really interesting thing. It happened, this is all things we know of do this. Water doesn't. Right before freezing, it seeps. So, so you got water, and it's it's cold, and the coldest water sinks to the bottom, like everything else. And it gets colder and colder and colder and colder, and eventually the water begins to freeze on the surface, not the bottom. And because of that. We don't have our lakes and our oceans, etc. freeze into solid blocks of ice. And so as long as we have enough depth in most of the country, you absolutely are not going to have a pond freeze into a solid ice cube. And the fish produce almost no waste when it's this cold, and they don't need a lot of, of, of oxygen, and they don't need a lot of gas exchange, and they don't have a lot of problems with waste. That's how they survive in natural systems all the time right now. So dig that hole as deep as you can, but be safe with it. Like, people are like, that's sand, so it's easy to dig in. Yeah, it collapses real easy and crushes you and kills you too. So you have to think about your projects with that. Um, I really think you should use local fish. That doesn't mean they necessarily have to be fish you caught locally. Like if you have channel catfish or a local fish, and to get a bunch quickly you buy some from a hatchery, that's fine. Even if that hatchery, I don't know, was two states over. That's not what I mean. I mean, the fish species is local to you. And my favorites, channel catfish, bullhead catfish, and various forms of sunfish. So bluegills, pumpkin seeds, red ears, etc. All of them. They're all delicious. They're all readily available. And they all survive in 90% of the lower 48 or more. And that means a whole bunch of things that you would have to worry about, you don't. If you have a good cycle running, the biology is stabilized, you have decent oxygen levels, and, you, and you're using local water, and you take a fish from a stream that's a couple miles from your house and you stick it in there, 
and it doesn't live, you've done something horribly wrong. It means that fish is resistant to local diseases, and it's used to local climatary changes. Where if we decide, I want to do tilapia because the Internet says so, right? Okay, well, tilapia are not native to the lower 48 United States, and they're a lot like citrus. Pretty much if you can grow citrus, you can grow tilapia outside year-round without supplemental heat in the United States. Pretty much. That's even a little questionable in some situations. Um, generally accepted tilapia can go down about 55 degrees. I have had tilapia adjust to my climate to the point where they were fine. They weren't real active, but they were fine when the water was 40 degrees. And do you know what happened when the water went to 38.5 degrees? They all fell on their sides like they were dead and laid at the bottom of the tank. Right at 38.5 degrees. Significantly lower than the 55 degrees that they're supposed to be able to tolerate. Because they slowly acclimated it to it over time. But 38.5, it was like somebody shut the switch off on them. And I took a 300-gallon stock tank, put it in my garage, filled it up with water out of the well that was in the 60s. Took a dip net, dipped them all up, threw them in there, and figured, they're not going to come back. I'm going to have to process them. 15 minutes after I put them in there, they were all swimming around and they were fine. 100% of them made it through winter and back to the next spring when the water warmed up enough to put them back outside. And I also said, I'm never, ever, 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 infinity doing that again. Too much trouble, too much of a pain in the ass for a fish that's decent to eat but not that great. If you're going to try to grow rainbow trout in Texas in the summer, you're going to always have oxygen levels lower than they want, water temperature higher than they want, and you can do it, but it's going to be hard. If you live in Colorado and you can solve the freezing issue with depth or whatever, you can grow all the freaking trout you want because trout live in Colorado. This is really simple, but it, it just seems that we have this desire to be different and the grass is greener syndrome comes in. And what I mean by that is you take a guy in the tropics, he wants to grow apples. You take a guy in zone six, in the middle of the United States, where apples just grow. If you throw apples on the ground, some of them will grow. And what does he want to do? He wants to grow a lemon. And it's just our very nature. But I think it makes sense to stick with the things that do good in our area. And then you have an unlimited supply of local fish. And this is my go-to. I go to places that I know I can catch fish. I like to catch fish, so I would do that anyway. I take all the fish that are not quite big enough that I would normally harvest them for food, but they are legal, whatever that means in the area, and I bring them home and I put them in my ponds. Then I feed them, and then in a very short period of time, they're big enough to eat. So if I go to a hatchery and buy 50 tiny little bluegills, first of all, when I put them in my ponds, the catfish are going to eat them. So I don't want to do that. But if they weren't in there... It's going to take two, two and a half years to grow those fish to like seven, eight inches, where they'll be like a good three quarters of a pound, and you know two of them make a decent meal for one person. If I go down to the creek, oh, should I up to the creek because it's north from here, right? I always say up for north and down for south. That's just what I do. Um, but it's about two and a half miles from here. There's a public disc golf course where people throw frisbees as golf. I don't get it, but if you like it, that's fine. And there's a creek that runs around the back of it. And I can generally easily catch 20, 30, 40, how many ever I want. 
various sunfish species, most of them are bluegill or green sunfish, that will be between four to five inches long on any given day. If I bring those fish home, get them into my system, and then they start to eat both the, the, the food that's produced by the system and the commercial feed that I use, in a year, they're bigger than my hand. And they're freaking delicious, and they're on demand whenever I want one. And you can't do that, in my opinion, with non-local species. At a minimum, I would only use fish that are endemic to your climate type. So if that fish does come from another place, it is not local to you, but it lives in a place with your water conditions and your climate, then fine. But local fish to me are the best. Um, I also do not adjust my pH. I do not chase water quality other than to make sure that I'm not like too high in my nitrites or my nitrite nitrate cycle and make sure that's working. Once I get a system balanced, so I will take readings on the system when it's brand new. Usually, I don't even do that anymore, but I've gotten to where I can kind of look at the behavior of the animals and, and know what to do, right? But once I get that cycle established, I don't do anything except add water and occasionally do a water change. And the reason is a couple things. Number one, my fish are adapted to the type of water conditions that occur in my climate because they're from my climate and my region. So, yes, my water is slightly alkaline. So what? All the water is alkaline. People are like, oh, my God, you put a cinder block in there. Okay, first... If you touch a cinder block after it's been in, a, in one of these ponds for, oh, I don't know, a couple months, it is slick. There's a patina of biofilm around it, and it's locked up, and it's not contributing to the alkalinity of the water at all at that point. Lockup is a real thing in aquatic systems. It makes them inherently resilient. However, the stream that those fish came from is literally a limestone bed stream. That water is more alkaline than the water that I'm using from my well, plus the, the 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 contribution of the cinder block, right? So if we're if we're if we're going to start chasing pH, we're always going to be chasing pH. If we're going to start chasing anything that can vary in our water, we're always going to chase it. If we let the fauna adapt to the ecosystem, the ecosystem in time will stabilize. And in the end, the only thing you're going to do to rectify this problem, other than you know, pH up and pH down, which I think is just, I think you're just chasing your ass if you're doing that. Anything else, what you're going to do is what? You're going to do a water change. I mean, and over time, your total dissolved solids will continue to rise. That's the only way you can rectify that. You can't put an additive in that makes dissolved solids go away. So as the hardness increases, eventually you need to do a water change. There's a lot of ways to do it. You can pump water out of a system and then fill it back up or you can just run new water into a system and push old water out that's what i do i create overflows in my ponds i take a garden hose and set a timer because i didn't yesterday and i flooded the whole damn mid-swale system out the ducks are happy about it set a timer or better yet if you have a hose put one of those mechanical timers on it that way you can't forget uh, because sometimes your timer goes off you're like uh, I'll go get it in a second. You hit stop, and then you get distracted and pet the dog and do something else, and then you forget, and then the ducks are happy, right? So you set a timer, you push water through. By pushing water through, you're doing a water change. 
And if anybody thinks that's not good enough, this is what we do in the aquarium trade all the time. When you build a, a, a full-on fish room, you do not have time to be going in there and vacuuming all these tanks all the time and sucking water out of them. Is that 20% or whatever? You develop systems that are natural overflows, and you push water through the system. So it's done all the time. It works just fine. Um, but I don't believe in chasing your water quality other than to keep it good. And I think that in time, if you get comfortable with this, you can tell when something's not right. Your fish will behave in a way that is not typical, and you'll see that way before a test strip will tell you, and you can do a water change. So let's not make it any more complicated. I've also learned things like, you know, if you have floating aquatic vegetation, it starts to lose color. It can drop its roots, and that can kill your fish mechanically. So then you, that's the time to get that or the majority of it out of the system, compost it or feed it or whatever you're going to do with it. But you'll learn this as you go. And... If you're not on a well, I personally think if you're going to do this at any scale, if you don't want to grow, go broke by a dechlorinator, put in some form of rain catchment that you can use your rainwater. And, you know, people are worried about, like, asphalt roofs, and I, I don't even care. I don't Now, of course, all the roof I catch water off of is metal anyway, but um, I'm not worried about that. A simple first flush, and you're good. I have a friend who turned his entire – he has a swimming pool in ground. Uh, he turned the whole thing into a, a natural pond. And he runs his water straight off his roof, straight into it. And he has no problems. His his pond is freaking beautiful. So if you do that, you're going to bypass a major expense and a major hurdle. I think you'll probably still at times have to use water from grid water, and you do need to dechlorinate it when you do. Um And then last, I just want to say, even though I talked about the fact that you can make these systems highly resilient and self-feeding, do not hesitate to use commercial feed. There's a lot of people, like, they, they don't want to use any commercial feed in their systems whatsoever. Um, I feed somewhere between 100 to 150 pounds of pellets a year, and those that have seen my videos, and I'll have a lot of systems. If I had, like, that one big Miyagi, I would probably be lucky to go through 70 pounds of feed a year, bag and a half-ish, 75 pounds of feed. It's very inexpensive. The fish are incredibly healthy eating it. You can tell when you look at a fish if you're looking at a healthy fish or not. If I could get, you know, an organic fish food that was reasonably priced, I would use it. But I can't even find it at all in my area. So I just feed regular, I feed Aquamax. And, and it doesn't bother me at all. I know that no matter what, the quality of that fish exceeds anything I can buy in a store. And it certainly exceeds... The fish that I'm taking from the wild, I think their health improves over time in my systems because we do have, you know, issues with things washing into the water, you know, what have you. And then my systems are all completely uh, controlled, right? So I, I don't have any pesticides or road waste leaching into my ponds. So don't hesitate to use commercial feed. And, I mean, this is back – somebody recently when I talked about on Miyagi Mornings, I talked about um, – soy-free feed, and they said, well, I don't have hardly any options for anything other than conventional feed in my area, but Tractor Supply now has this feed, and it's soy-free, but it's not organic. And I said, I would feed that to my birds before I would feed them organic feed with soy any day. Because even the things in there that I'm not in love with, not having you know phytoestrogens in the eggs that I'm producing for myself, I'm better off. 
So when I look at something like Aquamax, and I'm sure there's some things in there that I would prefer not to be in there, but, but I know what's not in there. Like heavy metals from runoff of fuels and other things into the groundwater is not in there. Right. So I, I know I'm making a better product. And if we could do things perfectly, we would. What we're trying to do is the best that we can with what we have. So don't hesitate to use that. And I'm going to finish this with saying the reason I decided to do this show today, and I hope it's well received. I, I'm really not sure right now if I've, if I've done you justice today with your time. I always do my best, and sometimes I do better than others. Um, instead of giving you the nuts and bolts mechanics of how to do it today, I wanted to give you this way of thinking about it because this is something you really will not learn and understand until you do it. And I don't think, even if you came here and spent a couple of weeks seeing how I do everything, that would necessarily 100% translate to what you would do. Because most of you can dig a hole. That changes everything. Like I, I've had to deal with the environment that I've in, I'm in. And I've had to make some decisions that are less than optimal because I want this on my property. And that's how I can get it done. You might live in, I mean, it's, it's obviously less expensive to dig a hole and put a liner in it and kind of berm around it a little bit and make it all nice and just basically make an in-ground pond than it is to build a structure that you line. Clearly, that's more efficient. It's more natural. It looks cooler, right? It looks more like it belongs there. So if you can do that, you should do that. But you're still going to come across some things. You're going to realize, hmm, the way this land lays, I can take this dirt out and berm it here, but I can't. I don't have enough clay content to uh, to seal my pond, so I'm going to have to find. I mean, to buy a liner. Is that what you should do? I don't know. You can do a glee seal, which is where we're using like we put down a layer of uh, of manure, and then we plant a cover crop into it, something like a buckwheat, and then we roll. Once it grows fully, we roll it flat and put a, another layer of of composted manure on top, and then we compact that, and then that green matter forms a glee which is like a gel, and it penetrates both layers, and it forms a seal that's as good as any clay seal. Is that what you want to do? How big is the pond going to be? Do you have access to the materials that we're talking about? Or is it just easier to buy an EDPM pond liner? Which, which one makes the most sense for you? You're going to have to figure that out for yourself. Once you put it in, you're going to find that there are um, different systems and different things that you can do to tweak for your environment. You know, freezing is not a big problem for me, even though it happens. Freezing is maybe a bigger problem for you in Wisconsin. Will it work for you? I don't know. You're going to have to figure out. I know that it can. You're going to have to figure out, is it worth what it will take to do it for you? Or some of you may decide, I love this idea of growing fish, and maybe it's, you know, it's 10 IBCs in, in a, in a uh, shop building, lining a wall. There are ways to do Solar heating. I'm going to experiment with that. We can take something like I just put in this new system for growing duck feed mostly. Um, we can put, and I did into this, a direct drive solar pump. Sun comes up, pump comes on. Sun goes down, pump goes off. Would it be better if it had a battery system and it ran all the time or ran through the night partially? Maybe. Could be. But there's an advantage that we can utilize. If the pump runs... When the sun comes up, and it doesn't run when the sun goes down, and we take some of that flow and run it slowly through a solar hot water heater, and that water's coming in that heater at, let's say, 50 degrees, and coming out at 75 degrees, 
it's not, and we, we set the, the, the solar water heater so that if the pressure goes away, it drains, which is not that hard to do. We don't have to worry that there's going to be water pumping to the solar heater when the solar heater is actually is frozen solid, right? It's only going to run when the sun's up and the, and the heater is warm or warmer than not, and now we're putting warm water into the system. I didn't say hot. I said warm. So instead of like we typically think with the solar hot water heaters, we have a lot of capacity in it, and we fill it up, and the water just sits there, and gets really, really, really hot. And then when we need it, we draw from it like a battery. What we're doing in this environment is we're putting the water through it at a very slow flow, and by the time it works its way through, it gets 10, 15, 20 degrees a gain. I've never done it, but since Sean Mills, who does this type of thing for a living and is an engineer, says we can do it, I believe him. So we can take these systems and do that. Now, the advantage of this is if we move enough water through that pond or through that, that, that heater to turn the whole system over, let's say, two times during a long winter's day, I know they're shorter than summer, but still it's quite a few hours of the sun beating on it, and we move that water temperature up to 60, 65 degrees, and it's a, a, a climate or a time of the year when we really only freeze at night, then that, wa that, that is not going to freeze in any significant way overnight. Because now we have to move that water all the way back down to 31 degrees for it to freeze. Right? So by just constantly moving it up, there's ways we can do that. How is that going to work for you? Does that work for you? How would you implement it? I don't know. You know, what can you grow to feed your fish? What can you grow to feed your livestock? How big can your system be? What do you do when X happens? I don't know. This is really one of those things I think we're going to have to slowly over time learn or maybe relearn. Because like I said, there are thousands of years of history. And the most productive systems in the world incorporate on some level aquaculture. So I really recommend that you check into it. If you have questions about this type of thing, I'd love to do kind of a follow-up on this one, more how-to. Just send them to me, Jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC in the subject line. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you, if you'd like to show in the work that we do, you can always help us out just by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day is one I probably should have brought around a long time ago. Uh, I mentioned it yesterday when I talked about my supplements. And then yesterday, when I put the link to it in the show notes for yesterday, somebody clicked on it and said, Jack, you said that this zinc supplement you use has copper in it. I don't see any. And I'm like, oh, grumble, grice, blah, what are you talking about? And I clicked on the link myself, and I went, what the hell is that? Amazon, I don't know why, redirected the link. That's the, that's the only explanation I have. It was a brand I had literally never even seen before. So if you bought it, and it doesn't have zinc in it, or copper in it, I'm sorry, and you, I would cancel the order or return it. The product that I recommend, and I did a full review so you could see a picture of the bottle, and you know what it is, and if this happens again, you'll know you're not looking at the right product, you'll know what to look up and find, is made by a company called Solaray, S-O-L-A-R-A-Y. This is a very well-known, long-term, you know, in good standing manufacturer of supplements. I'm not one of these people that think every other supplement maker except the one that I recommend is junk, and only mine is magically good. Um, 
You know, it's about the form of the elements, etc. But as I mentioned yesterday, if you're supplementing zinc at a significant level, you need to be supplementing copper because they compete in the gut with each other. I'm very thankful to an MD in the audience who, when I started recommending supplemental zinc along with other things during the beginning of COVID, said, hey, 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 if you're, if, you know, you're talking 50 milligrams of zinc a day, you've got to be supplementing at least 2 milligrams of copper because they compete in the gut and you can have a copper deficiency. So you can be getting enough copper technically in your diet, but because of the zinc, it's not getting all absorbed, so you need extra. So when I found this brand, it was the only brand I found on Amazon that met two, three requirements. One, I knew who the hell the manufacturer was. I could look them up and, and say, okay, these people aren't some fly-by-night you know, group of ass clowns. Number two, the zinc and the copper were in it together in the right ratio. And number three, the zinc was in a form that was highly absorbable by human bodies. It's the old, I'm not saying it's the only one that exists. It's the only one on Amazon against, made by Solaray. And if you're taking this... I really recommend you're taking at least, you know, like one a day of like a 250 milligram quercetin as well, because without the ionophore action of the quercetin to get the zinc in the cells, it can't do a lot of what zinc does for us from an immune standpoint. I need to say right now, I'm not making any health claims about this product or any other supplement. I am not a doctor. I don't even pretend to be one. But when I read the science, It made a lot of sense for me to have this in my life and in my routine. And I think if you review the science and you see what happens when we increase the amount of zinc inside our cell walls through the use of an ionophore like quercetin and the natural antiviral properties of quercetin, you'll probably come to the same conclusion. I'm not going to say you'll never get sick or anything like that, but I think we take this and we add vitamin D and C to it, and I think it goes a long way toward being happier and healthier long-term. Do your own research. And I think if you go research all of the zinc products on Amazon, which I did, you'll come to the same conclusion I have, which is this is the best one for this purpose. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, wrap things up with the song of the day. Uh, I've always loved this song. It's by a guy I really don't know much of his music other than this one song uh, named Joe Nichols, and it's called The Impossible. And a lot of you are probably thinking, I don't think I've ever heard that song. As soon as you hear it, you'll be like, oh, I've heard that song. It's been around since like 2002, so it's actually old. As sad as that is, the 2002 is old. Um, but it's a country song, but it's one of those country songs that's kind of had some cro pop over, uh, crossover pop exposure. And I think most people in this audience will have heard it before. And it's, an, it's, it's a really great song. And it really tells the story of two different events. One is this guy idolized, just absolutely idolized, his dad for being tough. And the dad in this story makes me think of my father's father, my grandfather. And because uh, that was the old man I, I've talked about before. That, like He had coal embedded in his arm from an accident in the mine. So when I asked him about it, he said, ah, it wasn't worth having it taken out. It don't hurt nothing, no way. And... You know, in this song, this it's just a tough pull the splinters out of his hand without even flinching. And I guess we get older, we understand you can pull a splinter out of your hand without flinching. But you're a little kid, man. Your dad or your granddad, they're just the toughest man you can even think of. You can't even see a place where somebody's tougher than your dad. And, you know, you learn in time that almost all, everybody but one person in the world at any given time has somebody tougher than them out there. And most of us have a lot of people tougher than us. In many ways, but certainly when it comes to that kind of little boy, you know, my dad can beat your dad attitude, you know. And he, he watches his dad his whole life, never shed a tear. 
carry that toughness. But on the day his grandpa died, his dad's dad died, his dad cried. The unbreakable man broke. And you start to learn that you, you never count anything out. The other story is he and a buddy get in a wreck. And I don't think the story is, the, the, this is a true story, although things like it have happened. I don't think it's based on it. I think it's just you know, conjuring these images into this song. Uh, they get in a wreck, and he walks away without a scratch. But his buddy ends up in a wheelchair and was told he'll never walk again. But on graduation day, he stands up, and he walks. He gets his legs back. And I love that feeling, and I love that sentiment that we can always overcome everything, and we can always do better, we can always do more. I'm the one that tells you the way you know whether your mission in life is over or not is can you fog a mirror. If you can fog a mirror, there's something left for you to do. So I love the sentiment, but there's also another side of this with doing things that are dangerous, like car wrecks. When I was a teenager, I got in a car with a guy I shouldn't have gotten in a car with. He had taken his mother's car, and I knew it. And two of my friends got in the car as well. And he was trying to show off, which is always bad for teenage boys. He came around a turn, and there was a turn, came around, and it kind of went up and then down a steep hill. And it was a thing that we all did. You came around that turn, and you kind of hammered it, and the car got just a little bit of air. It really didn't come up off the ground. You kind of got that shock lift. Well, you could get actually a tiny bit of real air. We'd get that thing coming down the other side of the hill. If you did something that was really stupid, but there was a time to do it, it wasn't quite as stupid. And it's going to sound dumb at first when I tell you what it is. You go in the wrong lane. When you went in the wrong lane, you got a little bit more lift, and you kind of came down, and you got this little dirt. Well, the time that you could do it and get away with it was nighttime. And I think for some of you, the lights just clicked on, and for the other of you, even though the light should have gave it away, it didn't. At night, if there was someone coming up the other side of that hill, you could see their lights, so you knew not to do it. Well, dummy decides he's going to do it in the middle of the day. Hey, it's a crapshoot. Maybe there won't be anybody there. There was. When we hit the ground, we were coming straight at a head-on collision with another vehicle. He wasn't a very good driver, but he did cut the wheel, and we avoided the collision. We, we kind of slid sideways back and forth a couple times. Had we gone off the road, on the wrong side of the road, we would have dropped into a marsh where we would have all drowned. I have no doubt. The, the, the steepness of the drop and where we would have landed, we would have all died. Instead, we ended up with the car flipping over, rolling over Tonister's roof, and it slid over 280 feet. If you don't think you can get friction burns, like road burns, through the steel roof of a car, you're wrong. Because I had both of my knees look like I had slid off a motorcycle for you know 20 feet on the, on, on the catam. Just bloody red, bleeding through the pants from a friction transfer. I busted my head. My face hit the windshield. On the, the, I was in the passenger seat, and my face hit the outside, the roll-down windshield. Uh, big black and blue eye, but I got up and walked away. And every single one of us did. None of us got hurt. But that wasn't because an unsinkable ship sank. It wasn't because the impossible occurred. It was because we got lucky. 
And that whole series of decisions that all of us made, from the guy who took his mother's car and was driving and had you know, the greatest amount of responsibility. But the decision myself and my two friends made when we got in that car, knowing all of this, all of those decisions could have spelled disaster for all of us and our families. And I never forgot that. And it has always stayed with me and always tempered my decisions and not thinking that I was the unsinkable ship. Not thinking that I could get away with everything. And I didn't mean I got timid. I still spent you know, a few years jumping out of airplanes for a living. Still volunteered to serve in the military. After that, I still spent time alone in the wilderness. I still did rock climbing. I did a lot of things that are considered dangerous. But it was along with the education necessary to do it as safely as possible. And so I think one of the dangers in wonderful songs like this and the sentiment that comes with them is it's all going to be okay. And I think it is important that we learn as we age Sometimes it's not going to be okay. And that's one thing. And sometimes life just hands us things, and we just have to deal with it. You know, any one of us can end up in a serious auto accident. It's not really our fault, maybe not even anybody's fault. Sometimes accidents happen. But just as often, maybe more often, when bad things happen to people, they bear some responsibility for it, and they can be avoided. So... While this song is really a story of triumph, I think it does us well to make our triumphs things that are necessary rather than things that we've brought upon ourselves. With that's been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. My dad chased monsters from the dark. He checked underneath my bed. He could lift me with one arm Way up over top his head He could loosen rusty bolts With a quick turn of his wrench He pulled splinters from his hand Never even flinched In 13 years i never seen him cry But the day that Grandpa died I realized Unsinkable ships sink Unbreakable walls break Sometimes the things you think never happen Happen just like that Unbendable steel bends If the fury of the wind is unstoppable I've learned to never underestimate The impossible Then there was my junior year Nearly had a brand new car It was late, the road was wet I guess the curve was just too sharp I walked away without a scratch They brought the helicopter in Billy couldn't feel his legs He said he'd never walk again But Billy said he would And his mom and daddy prayed and the day we graduated, 
they stood up to say Unsinkable ships sink Unbreakable walls break Sometimes the things you think would never happen Happen just like that Unbendable steel bends If the fury of the wind is unstoppable I've learned to never underestimate The impossible So don't tell me that it's over Don't give up on you and me Cause there's no such thing as hopeless If you believe Unsinkable ships sink Unbreakable walls break Sometimes the things you think would never happen Happen just like that Unbendable steel things If the fury of the wind is unstoppable I've learned to never underestimate The impossible